0: Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier,
1: senior editor, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation about science and technology. On today's program, Samsung stops production of its flagship smartphones after they, and the company's market value, go into meltdown. How bad is it?
2: Samsung has other problems to deal with, which actually may be much worse than than the burning batteries.
1: America's Food and Drug Administration approved a drug after an emotive social campaign that may have swayed the committee. Does this set a dangerous precedent?
3: It's not clear to anyone what the incentive is to actually properly test this drug now that it's on the market.
1: And how does social class affect your perception of others? A previous theory suggested those of higher social stature showed less empathy towards their fellow humans. But now it seems they just pay less attention.
4: Folks who are of the upper classes just don't view other faces that they see on the street as being faces
1: that can do much for them. First, Samsung is having a rather tricky week. Its flagship smartphone, the Galaxy Note 7, was pegged as the rival to Apple's iPhone. But in September, the tech giant was forced to recall millions of phones because of exploding batteries. It then announced it had found and fixed the problem and released a safer version. But the saga continued. Last week, one caught on fire on a plane. And several other incendiary reports of exploding or melting phones led Samsung yesterday to pull the plug on production altogether. Worse, it even told customers to keep their phones off. Ludwig Siegler, our technology editor, is here to talk us through the problems at the South Korean company. Hello, Ludwig. Hello, Ken. Let's start. What was the problem? It's the batteries. We know that.
2: But uh, in its rush to get replacements out into the market, Samsung kind of apparently got the diagnosed wrong what it actually is. So people still don't know. Uh, it seems that it has something to do with the space the battery has so these lithium-ion batteries expand when they're charged quickly or when they're used heavily. And and if the battery doesn't have enough space, the innards get damaged. And energy is really densely packed in these batteries. It's, they're like a tightly wound spring. So if something goes wrong, this spring expands quite quickly. And that's when you get these overheating, the meltdowns, and, and sometimes fire.
1: Got it. So it sounds pretty bad. How did the company handle it?
2: Actually, it, it, it reacted quite swiftly. The recall... 2.5 million notes, they replaced them they quickly pulled the plug once other stories came up. So in terms of what they did, it, it was okay. It seems to me, though, that, that the communication wasn't always very good. So people didn't know what to do. They still don't know what to do. I think there's still not sufficient information on Samsung's website. What is it going to mean for Samsung as a business? How much damage has been done to it? Of course, that, that makes a lot of headlines now, and, and people think it's the end of the world. I'm not quite sure. I mean, uh, the Node was the flagship product, but it's, it's a relatively small part of its business, even its smartphone business. I think they'll spend a lot of money on, on marketing, which they always do. They will try early next year to put out better devices, and probably the thing will soon be forgotten. But, I mean, Samsung has other problems to deal with, which actually may be much worse than, than the burning batteries. Such as? For example, it still has a very Byzantine corporate structure. Samsung Electronics is kind of the the crown jewel of the Samsung Group, and the Samsung Group has many other businesses like shipbuilding or making dishwashers or chips or displays for TVs. And all these companies are bound together by a corporate hairball of cross and and even circular shareholdings. And so that they have to solve because it leads to bad corporate governance. For example, they don't have a currency to spend a lot on, on acquisitions, which they may have to do. So I think, yes, the the news about the Node 7 is bad, but there are other problems they probably should solve.
1: Well, I will say this. This is a company that has faced lots of problems in the past and has always bounced back because they're just so tenacious. As a competitor and as a corporate warrior.
2: Yes. I mean, it it would be wrong to count them out. This is not like Nokia, uh, which which was the biggest maker of smartphones or phones 10 years ago. And is is now only makes wireless network equipment. Samsung has lots of other businesses. I mean, recently they posted results and and the profits were up 5% because they make chips, because they make displays. So the smartphone business for Samsung is kind of like the marketing. That's how they get their brand out there. But most of the money is made with rather mundane
1: stuff, very important stuff. Great. Thank you very much, Ludwig. Thanks again. America's Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, approved a drug last month based on public sentiment as much as a little bit of science. Critics suggest the move could set a worrying precedent and the effects could move beyond America's drug development industry. Natasha Loder, our health correspondent, is here with the story. Hello, Natasha.
3: Hello. 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 Natasha,
1: let's start with some background. What is the drug used for?
3: Exondis 51 is meant to treat Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, which is a progressive muscle disorder that affects mostly young adolescent boys and is usually fatal in their 20s.
1: Does it cure them or does it just allow them to live with it?
3: Well, the idea behind the drug is that it helps to manufacture some of the protein that is faulty in this disease and that this would improve their outcome for them maybe less disability.
1: Sounds terrific. So what's the problem?
3: Well, the problem is, is that nobody knows if it really works. And normally, when drugs are approved, that's the standard by which the FDA, the drug agency, judges them. It judges them on two criteria, actually. Is it safe and does it work? And in this case, it's fairly clear that the company that makes the drugs, Repta, didn't actually demonstrate that. So
1: the process of approval was also atypical. There was a social campaign. Tell us about that.
3: Well, what happened was the patients and their parents conducted quite a campaign to convince the FDA that this drug should be approved. And at a hearing earlier this year in April, lasting about 10 hours, many of them turned up and basically pleaded with the FDA to approve this drug. And that's pretty heartrending and difficult to refuse.
1: This, to me, sounds like a great win. If we can improve their lives, shouldn't we do all that we can?
3: There's a number of problems here, and foremost amongst them is that we don't actually know whether this drug is helping these children. And for every $100,000 that the government spends on a drug that isn't going to work in them, you have to ask the question, what are they not spending it on? And that is a question that is too infrequently answered. Another big problem is this question of incentive and you know if drug companies are going to be allowed to run trials on 12 patients that are flawed and then be allowed to market a drug, then why would they ever bother doing drug development properly? And so what the industry is worried about essentially is that by lowering the standards for approval, it's going to encourage drug companies, biotech firms with lousy products to simply lobby for their drugs to be approved. And that is a pretty powerful incentive. I mean, normally what happens is that if you don't reach those standards, then your drug fails and you lose a lot of money. And, you know, if I were an investor or Or if I ran a drug company with a a drug that kind of didn't work, my next step, instead of dropping the drug, would now be to figure out how to make the political argument that the drug should be approved anyway.
1: Let me push back against this a little bit. It's not that the drug doesn't work, it's that we're not sure if it works. And the very standards that you're referring to probably made sense for these big population-wise diseases. But when you have these very hyper-rare case diseases, even a clinical trial of 12 people is better than nothing. And as long as we can show that the treatment is safe, and it doesn't work under all cases but works under some, shouldn't we actually try it and run this, quote-unquote, natural experiment with real patients to see under what cases it can be improved so that we can iterate and improve it? If not, we're condemning a lot of people to die when there are treatments that could actually help some of them.
3: The the essential problem in America is that once a drug is approved to be sold is that there's very little leverage to not pay what the company demands for it. And Let me explain why that's important. If this drug was released onto a European market where governments conduct what's known as technology health assessments what the governments would say to the suppliers of the drug, Serapta, they'd say, look, you haven't proved your drug works. We're happy to give this drug to patients and see if it does help them. But if it doesn't, we want our money back. Now, that kind of pay-for-performance deal or kind of a rebate in the case of lack of performance is actually quite common in countries that keep a much tighter rein on the way they conduct their drug spending. In America, the problem is, is that once a drug is on, the market, especially one for a disease like this, you would expect pretty broad coverage. And by that, I mean, even though Xondis 51 probably could conceivably only work if it does in a tiny percentage of Duchenne's patients, rather a small percentage, probably it will be prescribed much more broadly anyway, because people want it. People want hope. And that's sort of a problem, really.
1: So I think I have a better understanding of your concern. It's not in principle, but in practice, you would be willing for this sort of natural experiment to go forward, provided that it wasn't just simply selling a, a pipe dream, selling hope to patients who are sufferers.
3: Well, absolutely. And I mean, you know, another big problem with the argument that Sarepta must now do what's called post-marketing approval, i.e. it must go through an attempt to show that a drug works while it is being marketed. Another problem with that is that there's really only one precedent ever for a drug having been withdrawn from the US market. And it's difficult and it's expensive. And so it's not clear to anyone what the incentive is to actually properly test this drug now that it's on the market. And even if Sarepta was really committed to testing this drug, there's another problem as well. And that is, if you're the parent of a child with Duchenne's, what you've got to ask yourself is, would you put your child on a trial? at all, given that you would probably just want the drug. You wouldn't want to be in a situation where you wouldn't get that drug. And so it's hard to know how such a trial is going to be conducted. It's
1: a real conundrum. Natasha, thank you for coming in to talk
3: about it. Thank you very much, Ken.
1: Do you have any thoughts on the developments in drug research? And do you think the FDA was right or wrong in approving the drug? Join us in the conversation by emailing us at radio at economist.com. Last week, we discussed Google's leap into hardware and how it's really just creating a distribution channel for its artificial intelligence. We've recently discussed the pros and cons of intelligent assistants in our home and on our phones. But Babbage listener Josh Kine emailed us saying we are in fact setting the bar too low and that we should be expecting far more from them.
0: He explains. While I could ask my Amazon assistant Alexa to order more milk, she should tell me you have a half gallon of milk remaining but you go on vacation next week and should have enough. Instead of forgetting my mother-in-law's birthday, again, Siri should tell me next Wednesday is your mother-in-law's birthday. Would you like me to send her the purple irises she likes or the donkey tails hanging basket plant that she hates? Future digital assistants need to be modelled after a great executive assistant or aide-de-camp, predicting what his or her principal desires are and learning based on feedback.
1: A Dr. Watson to one Sherlock Holmes, if you will. Or Spock to Captain Kirk. Or Hal 9000 to Frank and Dave. Don't forget you can give us feedback, comments, and thoughts about our work on Facebook or on our Twitter account at Economist Radio. Finally, does your social standing alter the way you feel about your fellow humans? In 2009, a theory was put forward that the higher up the social ladder people are, the less empathy they feel towards others. New research has added another intriguing angle— It could be that the posh simply pay less attention. With me to discuss the story is Matt Kaplan, our science correspondent.
4: Hi there, Ken. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. Matt, take us back to 2009. What did the researchers find then?
4: The researchers in 2009, a couple of folks out of Berkeley, were looking at people's ability to detect emotion on other people's faces. And one of the things that they noted in that experiment was that as you climb the social ladder and reach those upper middle class and upper class standings, you, you have a much more difficult time detecting the emotions on other people's faces. So the hypothesis that, that came out of that was, well, as you enter the upper echelons of society, your empathy is reduced. And, and and that may or may not be true, but a new experiment is adding this new dimension to it and suggesting that actually the upper echelons of society just aren't even noticing other people's faces.
1: So tell us about how researchers came up with that conclusion.
4: So the research started like so many good experiments on the streets. The researchers collaborated with folks, pedestrians, who they asked, will you please wear this Google Glass on your head as you walk down the street? It's going to monitor what you look at and then we're going to study what you were looking at on the other end, uh, just to see how the Google Glass functions. So all of these folks were under the impression that this was a Google Glass testing survey, not a psychological survey of any kind. The researchers then interviewed these folks, and they asked them a bunch of questions about their age, their ethnicity, but also about how well educated they were, how much money they made, and so on and so forth, so that they could get a sense of their social standing. And so what happened then? They noticed a key thing. As you climb in social status, you look at other people's faces for less time. It doesn't mean that you don't notice other people. You do. You do see other people, and you do look at their faces. But people in the upper middle class and the upper class spent a lot less time dwelling on the faces of others than those in the working class and in the poorer echelons of society.
1: And why do the researchers feel it's not because the people in the upper classes are a quicker study of things?
4: Well, that's a good question. They went on and they replicated this experiment in the lab where they asked students to stare at screens that had images on them of the street and they monitored where their pupils went and they got very much the same results it was longer if you were in the lower echelons of society and a lot shorter if you were in the upper echelons but here's the rub ken they ran this final bit of the experiment where they presented people with an array of images the images included faces sometimes mundane objects like a potted plant sometimes clothes And the people in the study had to look at the images presented to them one after the other and detect if anything had changed. The arrays of images were sometimes totally identical, and sometimes there was one thing that was different. And it was astonishing. People who were in the upper classes were less capable of noticing that a face was missing than those who were in the lower classes. So that was what led the researchers to suspect Well, wait a minute. It's not that the people in the upper classes are a quicker study because there's nothing to study on an array of images. They're just not taking as much notice of other faces.
1: And do we have any theories about why that's the
4: case? The researchers are speculating that as you climb higher in society, you become less interdependent because your financial wherewithal is so significant, you can pretty much do what you want and you don't need to worry about others so much. But I'll be honest with you, Ken, I have My concerns about that. Because when I was asking the researchers about this work, I said, look, you're only using street scenes. What if you were to take the same group of people and present them with an image of a Christmas ball at Buckingham Palace? Would folks in the upper classes not lend much attention to the face of some punter with a crown? And they really didn't actually have the answer for that. And in fact, that's something that they really want to explore. It may very much be context dependent. And folks who are of the upper classes just don't view other faces that they see on the street as being faces that can do much
1: for them. You could also imagine that in the setting of a negotiation when you're across the table, they might have incredible emotional awareness of what other people are thinking.
4: Yeah. The, the real question is whether or not social class gaze and attention varies simply with social class, or whether the social class that you belong to shifts the attention that you give things in different contexts. And I, I strongly suspect the
1: latter, but the data just isn't there yet. That's really interesting. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read any of the articles discussed this week, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist in printer online, and don't forget to rate our podcasts. In London, this is The Economist.